What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Roll for Persuasion. I'm your host, Andrew. Always excited to bring you guys a new episode each and every week, chatting with some of the coolest people in the Dungeons and Dragons, tabletop gaming, nerdy entertainment world. We have just such a guest with us today, and we will get to him in just a moment. But let's toss out a quick word here at the top for my awesome sponsor, AwesomeDice.com. If you are in need of dice, and let's be real, who isn't in need of dice? AwesomeDice.com is a great place to go and get some new uh, shiny math rocks for your tabletop games. They have all the cool brands, uh, cool styles if you want gemstone, metal, your classic resin, whatever you're into, they've got it. And if you use the code ROLLPERSUASION, you support the show and you get 10% off at AwesomeDice.com. Really appreciate them, appreciate small businesses that support this show. So go check them out, make everyone happy, it's a good thing to do. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please make sure that you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on podchaser.com. Those mean a lot to us. And by us, I mean me. Me personally. It means a lot to me personally. So if you like the show, please definitely leave us a review. Hit us up on social media. We'll drop the handles here at the end of the episode. Very excited today to introduce my guest, James Hake. What's going on, man? Hey, how are you doing? It's good. You know, we're living the quarantine life. I'm stuck in my own dungeon right now. <laughs> uh, doing my best to constantly keep checking busy. for traps. Oh my God. <laughs> that's, that's what I, that's what Twitter is for. I'm checking for traps on Twitter right. all the time. <laughs> my gosh. Every day it seems like some new strange thing has leapt out of the, 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 <laughs> the Masonry. I'm like, yeah. Oh my God, I need to make a wisdom save to prevent like sanity loss. Oh, for real. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh despite all of that uh, the sun is shining outside i've taken to writing outside and uh oh and my cat may has just decided to hop up next to me that's perfect come along may jump on uh join us for the uh for the ride yeah join us for the show may may <laughs> we're on video chat right now so i get to see your awesome cat jumping around <laughs> so we got james and his cat james you are lead writer at D beyond is that correct that's right and you also have, obviously, you have credits on multiple Wizards of the Coast uh, publications. Before that, um, I think you were big, and correct me if I'm wrong, but was it on N-World that you, uh, you were very active? Yeah, so I got my start writing uh, for N-World Insider. It was one of the first ever third-party 5th edition publications. Um, and I got into that because I was... Uh, I follow the development cycle of 5th edition very, uh, you know, almost religiously. Well, uh, on n-world so i was very familiar with it i i don't really uh i haven't done stuff for them in a while but uh they'll always kind of be the place where i <laughs> started dnd so that's still very important to me and, and you've certainly come a long way like we said dnd beyond and also uh i believe you worked on Waterdeep dragon heist descent into avernus uh did you work on the taldora campaign setting the, the original did. one yeah explorer's guide to Wildmouth. so you so you, uh, you're kind of knee deep in, in a lot of awesome D&D books at this point in your career. That's pretty cool. Thank you. So specifically, like on those books, what, what do you do as a creator on these projects? Kind of what is your, your specialty in these? Mm. It is a little bit different from book to book, but I would say for the most part, I think of myself as a, a narrative scenario designer, okay. basically. Uh, stories are what makes D&D important to me. Um, being able to tell good stories, uh, stories that people can engage with, that they feel represented by, that are are fun <laughs> on a fundamental level. Um, and uh, if if I can do that with a dungeon, 
uh, tell a story with a dungeon, that's great. If I can tell a story with a single monster, if I can tell a story with a single NPC encounter, you know, it doesn't matter what the building blocks are. I'll, I'll learn how to make the blocks. Uh, what I really want to do is I want to make a castle out of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, well, that's very cool. So, so take me all the way back then to maybe it's, uh, you know, early writing for insider. What was it that piqued your interest to go from playing the game to really creating in the game? Mm. <laughs> Which is kind um, of a, a silly question because playing the game is in and of itself a creative process, right? But taking that creative, creativity to share with others. <laughs> well, absolutely. When I started playing D and D in high school, I, um, I did it because I wanted to create things and share it with other people. I, I love, uh, I love orchestral music and I love, uh, fantasy stories that, you know, are accompanied by them. I loved star Wars as a kid and that got me into all of that. And as I look back on when I started playing D and D in high school, in many ways, uh, creating campaigns was always, uh, started by listening to a song or mm. to, uh, a genre of songs uh usually it's totally orchestral it's either like from classical or film score or video game score you know something in that uh in that sort of genealogy of music and i i, I really truly think that uh, from then until now a lot of the genesis for me wanting to uh play rpg campaigns with people is because there's a song i liked and i wanted them to like it too yeah very cool. um but you know, going going beyond that, there there are stories that I want to tell, uh, either because I've been inspired by something I've read, watched, played, or because it's something that has kind of a appeared, almost fully formed in my brain, and I just need to get it out. And uh, playing RPGs, you know, even though I'm a professional writer, playing a D and D campaign is still my preferred way of doing it because I don't like. Um, I don't like dictating mm. to people how they should enjoy my stories. The the collaborative nature of RPGs is very attractive to me because it's not I don't want it to be all about me. I want it to be about the interpretation yeah. and about the the collaborative act of creation. Um, and I played a lot in high school. And from there, I left my home state. And from there, I left my home state to go to college and found myself without a steady group to play with for, well, basically until my final year. Um, and I, I've talked about this before, but basically the thing that got me into writing is I needed an outlet for D&D. Yeah. &D. Um, and uh, eventually, over some you know, trial and error, it led me to work for Insider and that let me to work for geek and sundry which is through which i met matt mercer and through whom i got acquainted with wizards of the coast and you know there, there's a very clear chain that i can yeah. follow from me not having a DD &D group as a freshman to uh writing D, &D modules now and it's this uh, sort of alchemy of uh skill that i've developed but also of of uh, a great dollop of just like the privilege of being able to do that you know sure. i I was not in financial need uh, or, you know, I was not rich enough to just pay for college, but I was not in such terrible financial need that I needed to, you know, work a full time job in addition to my studies and stuff like that. And uh, just a good helping of old fashioned luck on top of that. Right. What, what do you think freshman James who couldn't find a D&D &D group would say uh, knowing that you are where you are now? 
<laughs> I, I think he'd be astounded. Um, I, I, I think he would, he would say that it's a dream come true. Yeah. So then you did uh, some writing for DMs Guild, right? Stuff that was published on DMs Guild. Mm-hmm. Um, what was mm-hmm. what was kind of the first thing that you publicly put out into the community for other people to play? The first thing that I put out on DMs Guild was an adventure called the Temple of Shattered Minds. And it was really a, a stroke of good fortune that allowed it to be created at all because um, – this was the first thing that I, I had written kind of as a uh, D&D deprived student. <laughs> and uh, what what basically ended up happening was I I love Mind Flayers. They're my favorite D&D mm-hmm. monster. Um, and I wanted to write an adventure with a Mind Flayer villain. I wanted it to be this kind of uh, classic feeling uh, adventure. I, I think I had watched some Matt Colville videos at the time. And so Temple of the or, or Cult of the Reptile God had yeah. been lodged in my brain. So I wanted this sort of Cult of the Reptile God style adventure, but with a Mind Flayer as a villain. And fool that I was, I did not realize that Mind Flayers are our D&D product identity, right? You yeah. cannot publish stuff under the open gaming license with a Mind Flayer because of, it's copyrighted. Um, and so right around the time that I had... Uh, started working for insider i had largely finished and then shelved that idea because i'd realized oh doy (laughs) can't do that um but that was just a few months before january 2016 when the dms guild launched Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden when the dms guild was active uh i had this adventure that i had worked on and tried to polish to a professional degree right there in my back pocket. All I needed was uh, art and layout. And those aren't small potatoes, but uh, I was able to get them and make something that, uh, well, you, you know, if I made it today, I wouldn't be proud of the way it looks. But I'm I'm still very, very proud of that adventure as a starting point yeah. for me. Well, that's, that's awesome, man. And so from there, because um, I was just looking at your uh, your portfolio site earlier, you you went and did uh, some more DMs Guild things. Um, I see stuff like Over the Next Hill and Plane Shift. And and then uh, I guess later in 2016, is that when you kind of started working with Geek and Sundry? Yeah. Um, I started working with Geek and Sundry uh, as a result of my editing work on uh, N-World Insider. Um, Geek and Sundry uh, sent out a call for interns somewhere uh yeah, fall of 2016, I think. Um, and little did I know that was basically when Critical Role had just gotten started. Mm-hmm. Um, I only knew of Matthew Mercer because of his role as a protagonist in Fire Emblem Awakening. Um, not that he was a huge D&D nerd. <laughs> so my my brother had at that time played briefly with Matt Mercer at a game at Seattle's local anime convention, SakuraCon in 2015. Uh, there's a great convention module called, um, I think it's Confrontation at Candlekeep, okay. something like that. Um, and there's this, it's an epic module, a multi-table event, and this blue dragon uh, goes between tables and just kind of wrecks shop. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, Matt Mercer at that time there was no critical role. He sure. was a voice actor. He was at an anime convention as a voice actor, but he was a big D&D fan. And so he uh, took up the mantle of playing that dragon. And so for a few minutes, uh, <laughs> Matt Mercer and my brother were at that convention table long before the critical role starts uh, yeah. had begun to rise. And so I thought that was a very cool 
uh, little coincidence there. Yeah. Um, but back to back to Geek and Sundry, uh, Critical Role had just started to uh, become a thing. People were taking notice of it. They realized we need someone on our staff who knows D&D and can write about it. And uh, I had no idea they wanted that, but I had insider editing experience because I was I was their editor, not uh, not a writer um, at that point. And they were like, wow, this is exactly what we need. And so I went down to as few credits I could as I could go in school without going uh, part time um, and for about nine months. Uh, I was there half the week during the school year and every day during the summer. And through that, I met folks like Matt Mercer and the Critical Role people, uh, just some fantastic people who will stay with me for the rest of my life, I'm sure. So then, you know, let's let's jump forward then a little bit more. Um, at what point did you get involved with, uh, I guess, would, would the first like published print book have been the Taldori campaign setting? Yep. Um through knowing Matt Mercer, uh, we got roped into that. Um, he wanted to keep his production team very much within the Geek and Sundry family. Mm-hmm. And and I respect that greatly. Uh, there is even then, even then, and it's more true now, Matt knew that uh, people in Hollywood will see something on the rise and they will want to devour it. It's this almost like proto mythological image of seeing fire start to grow and this desire to just consume it. Um, And you know, that's how Hollywood works. And the more people you bring in from the outside uh, who you can't trust, essentially the more likely that, that, that there's going to be some, uh, well, at best drama, at worst catastrophe yeah. uh, in the production process. So it, it was great to be really tight with Matt on that. Um, and from there, that that was the first sort of like, well, literally the first hardcover book that I had worked on. And so that mm-hmm. was a, a tremendous experience working basically tete-a-tete with Matt the whole time going back and forth in Google Docs. Um, and because of that book, people uh, people started to uh, reach out to me. I got my job at D&D Beyond because uh, Adam Bradford, the creator of D&D Beyond, saw the Taldori campaign guide. And we met in the balcony seats in Benaroya Hall uh, at PAX West uh, 2017 uh, before an Acquisitions Incorporated game. We happened to be in nearby seats. And he you know, reached out to me and said, hey, I love the Taldori campaign guide. Let's talk later. And uh, that led to me doing something similar to what I was doing at Geek and Sundry as an editorial intern, but on a a grander and uh, uh, more sustainable scale. Um, And similarly, Matt Mercer ended up being a consultant for Waterdeep Dragon Heist Mm -hmm. uh, at uh, at Wizards of the Coast. And he gave them a copy of the Teldori campaign setting. And in part because of that, uh, Chris Perkins reached out to me later that year uh, saying, hey, uh, we would like to get you as a freelancer for this book. That's pretty awesome. And it speaks to, you know, the kind of the tight knittedness of the D&D community and and really kind of the wizards and, and all that, that, you know, knowing one person who trusts you, like you were talking about trust being important, then being able to, you know, say, Hey, this person's trustworthy and kind of expanding that circle as kind of a cool ladder to, to have climbed up. Yeah. I, I realized that 
after telling that story, it really was all one big run on sentence. But that is kind of how it felt. Yeah, it felt yeah. like uh, a boulder rolling down a hill, never sure where the next thing would come from. Because, you know, at that point, 2017 was the year that I graduated college. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I started work on Dragon Heist the month before I graduated. Wow. And so yeah. it was it was. A, a mad dash the entire time it was pure chaos from you know in, in my brain the the process of making dragon heist was very calm and orderly and chris perkins and james intercasa were amazing people to work with and we had regular meetings that all felt very good but you know on, on my end i was moving back from california to washington i was packing my life up i was saying goodbye to friends and i was working on another book for cobalt press at the time (laughs) during that summer also the zobeck gazetteer uh and it was just just a a madcap event um and and somehow i'm even busier now than i was then so that should tell you a lot about uh how how hard one needs to work uh, in rpgs at a certain level at, at some point, you'll get a chance to stop and take a breath and go, whoa, that was an interesting four years that just happened. <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, jumping back real quick, because you mentioned Adam Bradford, and, and he's been on the show before, um, and uh, so is Lauren Urban at D&D Beyond. Mm. And, and what I've kind of heard from him and from her and some other people I've spoken to over there, and what I think that is really cool about Adam is that he very much does seem to do what you were saying. Like he sees someone who's doing something that's really cool. And he's like, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to go get that person. I'm going to go find that person and say, Hey, you're cool. Come do cool stuff. with me." Yeah. And that's surprisingly rare. I think in any business. So it's very cool to, to have somebody with that kind of feature or trait, if you will, running something like D and D beyond. Cause he seems to really have collected yeah. a lot of really talented, cool people under that umbrella. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's how it happened running. Um, what's the new show called? It's the one that, that Brennan Lee Mulligan is running, running, uh, uh, role in the family. There it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's how that role in the family show started. It, it was a big surprise to me when it showed up, but it, it, it feels like Adam reached out to Brennan who does dimension 20 and was mm-hmm. on college humor and who I love dearly. Uh, and the show just all coalesced around that. So it, it, it is nice to see these little spontaneous bits of, of creativity pop up in in this world because of someone who's just willing to say, oh, well, let's do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I told him when we talked. I was like, you're essentially just the green lighter of cool shit. You see something <laughs> cool and you're like, yeah, what if we made that happen? And he was Man, like, that's yeah, a that's great pretty much title. It, but with a much deeper Alabama accent. Right. So so Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which I've played through as a player and uh was awesome so thank you um for for that because it was so much fun to play well, thank you i'm happy to hear you loved it it was the first like full-scale published adventure that i had played in mm. um so i d i dm'd uh minds of fandelver mm. and then done a homebrew campaign uh, with another dm and then um, got to play in Waterdeep, and it was just it was a blast and the cool thing about it and i didn't read it but and no spoilers i think but there's so many different ways it can play out right mm-hmm. like depending on which villain you end up with and and all these different things. And so hearing about it from our DM afterwards, like all the things that could have happened was kind of a, a mind explosion. Yeah. So if, if you can like take, how did that module come to be? Like whose idea was it? How did you guys kind of flesh it out? What's the whole story of Dragon Heist? Dragon Heist is a story that I would say I was brought into about halfway through. Um, D&D modules take 
a longer time to create than I think the the, the layperson recognizes because mm-hmm. it's not just the writing and it's not just the art. All of that can be done easily within a year, I would say, usually half a year. All of that sort of freelance component where they bring yeah. in writers, they bring in artists. But, you know, Wizards of the Coast is a is a large company which means that they have to coordinate a lot of stuff between different departments. So uh, much like a movie starts in pre-production, uh, a D&D adventure will start with the germ of an idea in a uh, in a meeting that I don't know the details of yet, right? That's a very Wizards of the Coast thing. I, yeah. I don't know how those meetings work. Um, <laughs> but uh, it will go from a meeting and it will go to actually an art push first mm-hmm. to the best of my knowledge where all of their in-house artists will start concepting the look of the module. and. Uh, as far as I know, a lot of story ideas actually die uh, in that point, even mm. if they're cool enough to yeah. get into the designer's heads. If the book can't be visualized in that way right. uh, and there's no way to make it visualized, uh, then the idea isn't worth pursuing. And it's kind of it either gets shelved or it withers and, and dies on the vine or any number of things. I'm sure yeah. there are archives full of shelved ideas of Wizards of the Coast. Um, and from that point. It goes to the designers and they create a story Bible uh, drawing upon past works. Right. The Forgotten Realms has a ridiculously large history, yeah. uh, yeah. which can be intimidating, but it can also be a blessing. Um, and so it involves going through a lot of archive material and sort of figuring out, OK, what is actually going on here? What has been written about Waterdeep or the Desert Valley or so on and uh, Avernus, so on and so forth? Yeah. Um, and all of that gets turned into a. The, the document I got for Waterdeep was some 50 pages. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty hefty thing, and it kept changing throughout the process, uh, mostly growing. Um, and once a story Bible is there, or at least in a partially completed phase, uh, typically they bring in their consultants. Uh, for Tomb of Annihilation, uh, the Adventure Time creator was brought in to inject some hijinks and levity into what could otherwise be a rather dark adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of surprised at how well that uh, that marriage of tones worked. Um, Pendleton Ward, that's his name. Pendleton Ward, creator of Adventure Time. Um, for uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, um, there were two consultants one of whose names I ought to know, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and the other of which was Matthew Mercer, um, because this is at the the peak of campaign one of Critical Role. Yeah. And he comes in and he looks at the story and the story for Dragon Heist at this point is it's not the wild, seasonal, expansive uh, mystery that we know of today it actually just had manchun as its main villain it was a mystery okay. like okay well eventually the characters will figure out that uh, a clone of manchun is behind it all and and matt very adroitly said well everyone will know it'll be spoiled and the marketing will spoil it like yeah. people will know before the book is out oh well it's manchun yeah um and so and he was the impetus behind the the four villains in the four seasons because that way uh, right. The marketing did spoil it. We all know who the four villains are, uh, yeah. even from the word go, from the cover of the thing. Yeah. Um, we know it's Xanathar. Like, even if you even if you don't know who these characters are, you know that it's some sinister mage with a golden hand. There is a beholder. There are these uh, posh nobles and there is this drow with a fancy hat. And so yeah. already you've got a pretty clear idea of who these character archetypes are. Um, and so basically it's just, you know, you want a mystery? Here's all the stuff. Blah. 
now go go compile a mystery yourself um and that worked for dragon heist yeah and was it was it a little overwhelming or uh a bit of a shakeup for for Matt or for the team to kind of go, hey, you've got this kind of one line. What if we split that into four? Or was it a fairly seamless process? Well, I would say for them, it certainly increased the size of the story bible. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was much of a problem for them because that's when they brought us on. <laughs> that's when the freelancers showed up. The, gotcha, the, the gotcha. story concept was solid. Called in the troops. Right. Chris Perkins knew what was going to happen. So uh, he brought in me and he brought in James Intercasso. And w- together we each wrote about a third of the book. And there was a third of the, uh, you know, the final third of the book was written by a fellow named Matt Cernet. That's Volo's Waterdeep and Caridian, the the micro gazetteer for the city of Waterdeep. Um, but the rest of the book uh, was sort of divvied up between me and James, with Chris handling all of the all of the stitching and mm-hmm. making sure that it was a cohesive product. We decided to split up the villains evenly between us. I took the Castellanters and the Xanathar Guild. Um, Castellanters were my villains. So I love the Castellanters. It was so good. It was so great. I'm so glad you loved them. They were the last bit that I did of Dragon Heist, or, or their their lair was anyway. Their their mansion. It's the last bit I did of Dragon Heist, and every single like paragraph i got deeper into it i was like i should have done these guys sooner (laughs) i'm loving these villains um but that's okay that's okay because uh i think even though they for me at least came together only at the end Mm -hmm. uh, so many people have reached out to me and said they love them that uh, i consider it a big success anyhow um and uh so basically the parts i did i did the lair of xanathar and i did the lair of the uh the castle lanterns um and i did the first chapter of the adventure the one where volo asked you to find his pal floon blagmar um and the chapter immediately after that which is troll skull alley the home base for the party and the colorful cast of characters that surround them um meanwhile james intercasso uh was largely responsible for uh dragon season which is a ridiculously large and complicated chapter, and I have no idea how he managed it. Um, <laughs> but he also did the lair for Manchun and Colette Towers and the lair for uh, Jarlaxle in his awesome James Bond submarine. <laughs> See, and that's the thing. I feel like I need to go through and play it again multiple times to, to like get all the other you yeah. know villains and lairs that we didn't even get to touch. Oh, my gosh. There's, I mean, there really is so much. It's, it's only a five-level adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if there's not, I, I think some people have touted Waterdeep Dragon Heist as a very replayable adventure. And I think that might be true given a gap of like two or three years in between plays, but sure. I don't particularly see it as a replayable adventure. I see it as a highly customizable adventure. Mm-hmm. This adventure gives you, well, uh, not quite four times the amount of material you need, just shy of four times what you need to run a nice fifth level urban adventure. Uh, but you can mix and match and tweak right, it and yeah. change it. And, and that is the joy of D and D I, I, I'm getting into my own opinion here Go rather than, uh, telling history, but I have a very strongly held about D and a uh, strongly held opinion about D and D right now. Fifth edition began in summer of 2014 and it is now almost summer of 2020, six solid years of D and D. And there's been 
da 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 four solid years of DMs Guild and the open gaming license. There's a suffice to say, there's a ton of DD in the world right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is good because DD is more popular than it's ever been. And I'm so happy about that. It makes me so happy as there's so much DD in the world. But it, it, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a double-edged sword because there is so much good D&D that it becomes very, very difficult to uh, process it all. Obviously, we're spoiled for choice. If you want something that's tailored entirely to you, it's easier to find that sort of thing that's right up your alley. You don't have to, you know, scrounge for scraps. Um, but it, it means that creators... Whether you're a independent creator on the DMs Guild or a third-party publisher publishing on DriveThruRPG or even Wizards of the Coast themselves, now is the perfect opportunity to back off on like reams and reams of content. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have to be publishing level one through level fifteen adventures. We don't need that. Publish, you know, in two hundred fifty-six pages, full-color hardcover. Publish a five-level adventure. Uh, you know, make your gigantic project something that is is short and easily playable, but fill it with all the detail and care yeah. that would go into a full, you know, one through twenty level spanning book. Um, because I know people who are still playing Storm King's Thunder. <laughs> yeah, they've met every week for like three years, and they're you know they're approaching uh either 11th level playing the book at a normal at at its usual level pace or they have expounded upon the material there and they've begun homebrewing their own thing drawing from the hardcover and they're up to like 20th level now um D is is so um the the bang for your buck that you get with a DD book is is mind-boggling if you if you paid what you did for a movie ticket, you know, if we could go to movie right. theaters right now, I'm glad no one's going to movie theaters. Let me say that. But if we could go to movie theaters right now, you pay 10 bucks or more for your ticket. You pay like 20 bucks for your popcorn and your drink. And for a, a, a three hour trip to the movies, you paid like 30 bucks a person. Whereas you buy three core D&D books for 50 bucks each and maybe an adventure unless you're homebrewing something. Mm-hmm. Or let's go even smaller. You buy a D&D starter set. You buy the D&D starter set for $20 off a Target shelf. That's like 20 hours of gameplay oh, yeah. for, for you and your friends. It's ridiculous how, how economical it is. Um, so people don't need uh, the gigantic campaign length adventures anymore. I'm glad they exist. And honestly, I'm glad they're still being published. Mm-hmm. Because uh, even though we are flooded by D&D, uh, there's still a number of amazing campaign-like stories that can be told and can kind of only be told in that format. But I want to see I want to see more of these experimentations in format and style. Yeah. I think now is the time that we have the freedom to do that. And I hope that everyone on every level of the professional size and scale ladder from indies all the way up to big time pros start taking that approach just a little bit yeah and it really is so cool like you said to to have so many options so right now uh we're playing through curse of strahd which i imagine will take us quite some time an amazing adventure um and and, and we're loving it but it's so great because there is so much cool quality additional content out there i I had a guy on a a month or so ago uh griffin mccauley who does griffin saddlebag 
um, which is like these homebrewed magical items, fully illustrated, full, fun, really cool stuff. And so we start plugging these items in or we go find something else, you know, our DM will find something else, uh, you know, online and D&D Beyond or something in the homebrew. And it's all so well done now that you can, like you said, you can, it, it's like the seasoning and the spice to really make your adventure your own. So you can take that expansive, really huge campaign. And even still at the end, you're going to have an entirely different experience than anyone else who's ever played it. Um, but I really, yeah, I agree. I like your idea that uh, now is a time to really be experimental. That's what was so much fun about Waterdeep. It was, it was just different. And even that I think was really only scratching the surface of what could be done in a published adventure like that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But I'm always excited to see what the next big campaign is. I'm going back and reading a third edition campaign, yeah. uh, level one through 20 uh, thing published in Dragon Magazine called The Shackled City. And I'm, you know, I don't run third edition anymore. Uh, I burnt out on it in high school, but uh, it's, it's still damn good D&D. A lot of cool stories for me to nab for my uh, home campaign, which isn't, you know, based off any hardcover. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, a rich history of the Forgotten Realms that you can draw from for for anything. You're like, oh, I don't have inspiration. Let me let me just go look at this stack of stuff. <laughs> now I have inspiration. Absolutely. Um, is there anything else I want to say about hardcover adventures? I, I feel like that's kind of my my big hot take is that they should be yeah. just as big, but focus on a a smaller level band with more customization options provided um yeah that's that's my hot take for the day um but uh, other than that i'm very happy with the state of of dnd as it is it's it's a beautiful time to be playing absolutely let's take a real quick second here and give a shout out to one of my other sponsors uh talent and claw they make beautiful just fantastic custom wooden dice vaults dm screens um, just really beautiful stuff out of all these great rare and and special woods anthony up in uh, washington is, is just churning out this it's really fantastic stuff and actually right now when this episode airs they will have gone live for just about a week with their kickstarter where they're going to be making these dice vaults out of old whiskey barrel lids so if you like these cool textured you know kind of cowboy era looking stuff uh, these things are gorgeous you should go check them out so go to talentandclaw.etsy.com um, to buy any of their stuff you can use the show code roll persuasion save 10 percent there but also look them up on social media, Talent and Claw, and check out their Kickstarter because this stuff is just cool looking. If you are like me and you like cool accessories to store your dice in, if you are a DM who just wants an awesome screen to uh, rule the game behind, uh, definitely check them out. Their, their stuff is fantastic. Big fan of theirs here, and we appreciate their support for the show, so definitely check them out. I'm checking out their stuff right now and during the commercial break. Yeah, go for it. In fact, if you would like a dice vault, they told me to tell you, uh, we will gladly hook you up with one. So what? So okay. we'll, we'll chat. Yeah, we'll <laughs> chat after. We'll chat after we record, and we'll see what we can do to uh, get you some sweet talent and claw gear because they're man. They're cool that's people. so sweet of them. Yeah, I'll gladly. I'll, I'll gladly get in on that. Yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll we'll talk and we'll get that info and get it out to you. Um, but yeah, Anthony, the guy who makes it all, uh, was one of my first guests on the show, um, and I consider him a friend now. And and it's been it's been awesome to kind of get to work together on creating cool stuff together. So glad to have that's you on awesome. the show. Yeah, that's one thing I always talk about to people who are getting into RPGs. Um, and it's that the most important part of it is that for the vast majority of people, uh, RPGs are not a career. They're not a viable career path. And sure. the, the amount of people that's true for, uh, the amount of people who can do it is rising, but it's still a minuscule percentage 
of everyone who creates D&D stuff. And I think that's a tragedy, but I don't know what to personally do about it. Um, so when I got started doing RPGs, I, I had this hope that I would be able to do what I'm doing now. Um, and I feel so grateful and, and lucky that that's the case. But I just went into it with the hope of making friends, right? Uh, on, I, I, I am on Twitter. I do, I spend too much time on Twitter. Um, but when I first started on Twitter, uh, it was to connect with, uh, RPG bloggers, uh, whose work I liked. Um, Merrick Blackman does a great, uh, a great blog, Merrick's Musings that I read all the time. And I still read much of the time. Um, James Intercasso, uh, I gave him his first job in RPGs through Insider. And once that was, you know, finished and once it was clear to me that he was getting uh, busier and I couldn't just email him and say, write something for me, please. I ha I need to fill a spot this month um, that I would need to keep up with him on social media. And, you know, the, the list of people who I admired and wanted to know uh, just kept growing. And I needed to keep in touch with them and I wanted to be their friends. And that was the whole impetus behind it all. And so making friends is really great <laughs> without those friends. Um, the, the success is not worth anything. And uh, mm. without friends, the, the failure becomes impossible to emotionally recover from. So whether you're, you know, whether you're rising or falling or, you know, oscillating between the two if you if if you aren't going into it with the intent of making people who will support you and who you support in return there's just there's just no point <laughs> there's no point to any of it um which which maybe sounds a bit doom and gloom the way i'm saying it so solemnly but uh it it, it really is a, a joyous thing having these people whom you can commiserate with in failure and whom you can share success with in success. Absolutely. Uh, my, my mindset behind starting the show you're listening to right now was very much the same. It was how do I um, make friendships, make relationships with, you know, people in this community. And, yeah. and that's just been such a huge part of it for me. Um, you know, it's great getting to talk to, you know, cool, like D and D celebrities or whatever, but it, it's really the, uh, the friendships that have, have been built as I've been doing yeah. the show, that's really kind of made it, made it special, made it fun yeah. and then gives you more to look forward to down the road. It's like, Oh like, yes. You know, I was, I got to message uh, James Intracastle the other day. I was like, dude, I was, I've been watching the Castlevania thing you told me about. And we got to geek out about that, you know, together for a few <laughs> minutes. And those are the kind of interactions that I wouldn't have if it wasn't for the community around this game. And so yeah. it's, it's a very cool, just a very, very cool uh, community to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there is one challenge to this whole making friends on social media thing that I, I encountered uh, kind of in the middle between where I started and where I am now. And uh, uh, it's an issue that I think a lot of people who want to become, you know, in big quote marks, a name in a community or an industry face uh, somewhere in their path. And it's it's the idea of parasocial relationships. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're not into uh, Internet psychology, a parasocial relationship is basically uh, what forms between an online or a television personality, any sort of public personality uh, 
where they share intimate details about their life in a friendly manner. And so uh, you know them. There are millions of people who know celebrities and who feel like they have a connection to them. But these these people online, they don't know you um, and they're not your friend as much as you feel like you have a sort of kinship or connection. to yeah. them. They, they aren't your friend. They don't know you. And like that's that's not a dismissive thing. That's just a it's a statement of fact, like they literally don't know you and they and they can't get to know everyone. You know, if you look at some Hollywood celebrity on Twitter and they have. 20 million followers literally it is impossible for them to know all of those people and uh that's even true in the rpg community where like i feel like i have a huge following with like fifteen thousand twitter followers but like you know compared to enormous celebrities what what we have here is a very uh a very small pond um and personally i think that's amazing i do not i have no desire to be a big celebrity in any way shape or form i feel like that's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and it's a lot of it's a lot of managing other people's emotions and trying to like keep those unhealthy parasocial relationships from forming and stuff like that uh but i experienced the desire to be the friend of someone who i didn't know existed I say someone like it's one person, a lot of people. And some of those people I have met in person and become good friends with. And some I haven't. Um, and and over time, I've just had to realize that trying to, like, initiate a friendship over Twitter when all you have in common with a person is a hobby is a terrible way to try and live your life. Terrible way to try and make friends. It's a way that will break your heart yeah. uh, nine times out of ten. Um, and it's it's something that makes and it's ironic that I'm saying this while I'm quarantined in my house. It's something that makes uh, social gatherings like conventions tremendously important um, because, you know, th- those parasocial relationships still exist when you get into the real world. There are people who will come up to you at a convention or I, I say you there. There have been people who've come up to me at conventions who say, you know, I love your work. How are you doing? Like, oh, that's so sweet. Thank you very much. Like, it means so much to me. And and the and the conversation will continue because it's it's very clear that they're that this person is trying to be my friend and and I feel I really feel for these people uh because I I I desperately want to be their friend but yeah. I I I can't there, there there's no way that I can do it um and there there's no way that you can force a friendship and building a friendship on mutual respect and admiration is very good but building a friendship on the the foundation of like celebrity and uh, distant admiration it's it's like it's building a house on sand it's 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 weak it's mm-hmm. it's building a, a here's what it is it's building a friendship on the foundation of what you have constructed to be a person like in your mind right um and that's that's fake that will lead to you being disappointed in some way um so i i i feel like i've meandered from my original point <laughs> a, a little bit uh, which is make friends who you have really deep connections with yeah. find those deep connections even online and it, and it can happen and it will happen um but do not try and build friendships don't try and like shoot for the stars in trying to make a celebrity friendship it right. it, it won't work for you uh for reasons too numerous to name yeah and it's not because you 
are bad or the celebrity is bad or whoever. It's just what you're saying. Like the, right. the conditions for that just, they don't, they don't exist unfortunately yeah yeah Yeah. and it's not even some kind of like class or value difference not because you're some kind of you know plebeian trash and because these celebrities are adonis figures uh high above you it's not that at all uh your your lives have separated you in certain ways but it's 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 a difference of experience and we all have like a limited pool of energy um to pour into anything and particularly Mm -hmm. relationships and if you know like you said you can't expect someone who is constantly being asked for energy from literally thousands or hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of people to suddenly have enough to, Oh, you met me at a convention. Like, let me pour that into you. Sometimes those <laughs> right. friendships happen. Sure. Yeah, they but, do. But like you said, it, it, it's hard to base a relationship on voyeurism, which mm. is kind of, <laughs> wow. Yes. That is a way to put sounds it. sounds like a harsh way to say it, but the same. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of things too. I follow Mark Hamill. I like to think if Mark Hamill and I ever sat down and had a beer together, we might end up being friends. But I also know that like, that is kind of a falsely generated thing from within yeah. from watching this person from afar. Yeah. Because if absolutely. you think about it and, and now we're fully off on tangents and that's what this show is all about. <laughs> but imagine you had that interaction in the real world with someone that you see works at the grocery store. And one day you walked up and you were like, Hey, so it was your daughter's birthday the other day. And I saw the pictures that you put up and, and you start sharing all these things that you had observed about their personal life. It would be, it would be a little weird and in the <laughs> same, just, just weird. a little weird. And in the same way, we kind of, you know, we, we generate those emotional responses to things that we see people share um, online. And, and yeah, so I, I think it's good to be self-aware about, about those things, about yourself. And then maybe once you get, you know, to a point where perhaps you have recognition, you know, in a niche or whatever, um, self-aware about, about what you're putting out and then how you receive people who kind of have those feelings coming at you. Yeah. It's, a very, it's a very complex thing. Yeah. I'm going to pull us back to the conversation yeah. in in one way that I think is very useful to make friends. There are a lot of good friendships in creative professions like mm-hmm. RPGs that are born of mutual struggle. Um, and sure, that, yeah. that sounds a bit uh, dire. But what I mean is. If you are working on something with someone, if you have formed a a relationship of of, of mutual What's the word I'm looking for? Mutual uh, trust and uh, and collaboration. Then that that working relationship has the potential to become a social relationship. And it doesn't have to be. And it doesn't always, even if you want it to. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But when two people lift each other up um, and even support each other, you know, they've done a project together. And now, you know, uh, it's this is a relationship i have with james intercasa this is how it all got started right we worked on a project together and then we both did our own thing for a while and we always lifted the other person up saying hey my friend did this hey my friend did this uh look at what they did and then eventually we came back together for dragon heist and we worked on a project together that only further cemented the the friendship we have and so you know we go back and forth between lifting each other up and then you know clasping hands and working together and that's that to me is one of the most sort of beautiful industry friendships you can make because it's, it's based on trust and, and mutual understanding. Yeah. And, and I think, man, that's such, that's such a great point. It's such a great way to put it. And, and I think another important part of that, that you touched on is that friendships and relationships take time. Mm. And in, in, in the internet era where we have so much information about each other and we feel certain levels of immediate connection with people, celebrities or otherwise, um, it can feel like, well, we should have this relationship because I know 
facts or information or I've seen things about mm-hmm. you. And then forgetting that no relationships really take, they take years, right? Yeah. They, they are often a slow build yeah. um, before they really take off. And, and so finding, you know, time and energy to be patient and letting things build naturally and in a relationship setting is, is just as important as, you know, finding, you know, mutual hobbies that you have. Absolutely. This is a great talk. I love talking about this. I feel ready to talk about RPGs some more. Yeah, we could dive back. <laughs> or we could start our brand new podcast, which is uh, James and Andrew talk about relationships. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many people would listen, but that would be a very I, I fun know. podcast. Well, there's a lot of internet. I'd out be there. into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so then let yeah let's let's talk about RPGs again. Let's talk about uh, if you don't mind some of the work on on the two different critical role books you've been involved in because mm. I'm, I'm curious about what the difference in your experience being involved in the Taldori campaign guide versus, you know, the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. What was same? What was different? Uh, how, how did those go? Yeah, they were two very different experiences. Taldori Campaign Guide was a book that I was roped into very suddenly because it was in a moment of need, basically. And it was a smaller book because it was a more indie production. You know, even though Green Ronin Publishing, uh, you know, they're, they're established, they're a third-party publisher. Um, and Geek and Sundry, I, I wouldn't call them indie, sure. uh, even though it, it was a meeting of, of two reasonably successful small publishers. Um, it felt very much like an indie effort because it was basically just for, for most of it, me and Matt working on a Google document uh, late at night, because even then we were both stupidly busy. Mm-hmm. Um, this was for people trying to get a, a timeline. This was kind of uh, in the summer of 2016. Uh, through into the winter of 2017 or you know it january of 2017 um and it, it was so collaborative just back and forth i would edit his work and he would edit my work i would write something he would put his thoughts in there he would write something i would put my thoughts in there back and forth it went like that until we had something that we were both really proud of and i think there were definitely points in which uh I overstepped my bounds a, a little bit and he was like, back off. And I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> because uh, there are parts, you know, Matt's very protective of his setting and well, he should be um, not just because his career is based off of it, but because it's, you know, it's still his baby. That's yeah. a, a setting is really important. Any DM can tell you this The setting they create is important to them. Um, and I, I learned a lot about, Matt and a lot about the way he thinks and a lot about the way he creates worlds and writes. And I, 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 I found that I, I can create a voice, a writing voice very similar to his, our styles mesh very well. And that was kind of the joy of working on that book as such a collaborative unit is because it really had a unified style. Um, but uh, ultimately the, the Taldori campaign setting, it, it kind of zoomed by, uh, I, I was happy to see it. Uh, be finished and i was happy to be there at my very first gen con at gen con 50 uh to promote the book to be at the green ronin booth and talk about it um it was very cool uh and it it was the start of a very solid sort of like uh the exact sort of friendship we were just talking about with with matt i'm so grateful to have him as as someone who i can call my friend in part because of that book um and so some time passed 
uh, I worked on other projects. I always tried to stay close to Critical Role. I did write copy for two other Critical Role books. They're, uh, they're Chronicles of Alexandria, Vox Machina art books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some text that needed to be written, and uh, I, wrote, I wrote for the two of those. Um, let's see. But then I got the call out of the blue uh, from Matt when he came to tell me that he had reached a deal with Wizards of the Coast to publish a, a setting book with them for Wildmount for, for their second campaign. And it was going to be bigger and better than the last one. It was going to go in so much depth and detail. And it was going to include so many character options. And it was going to be amazing. And I was, you know, instantly on board. Any chance that I have to get to work with him, I take it. Um, and we brought on two other folks, uh, my perennial pal, James Intercasso, of course, and Chris Lockie, who I had known through Cobalt Press. And he's uh, he uh, works at Critical Role, so it makes sense. He's in that family already. Um, and it, it, it was similar. Uh, it was similar to the creation of the Taldori campaign setting. I got to see a lot more back and forth between Matt and Wizards because uh, uh, for for Green Ronin, they were they were pretty content to just let what Matt wrote be what Matt wrote. And there was some mm-hmm. editing and proofreading that went on. Yeah. That's that's what it was with, uh, you know, if this is a, an official Wizards of the Coast product, it needs uh, Wizards of the Coast level of polish. And that right. includes the mechanics and the spells. And it was very interesting seeing things get polished or whittled away uh, or stuff like that. I <laughs> I I should be respectful of of my NDA right here. I, I don't want to <laughs> sure, pull back sure. the curtain too far. Of course. Um, but, you know, the, the process is very back and forth in that way. Yeah. It was very interesting to see that. I got to see Matt working with their art director on art orders. Um, and that was uh, a fascinating thing to see because it's something that uh, until then was a hitherto unknown process uh, in the making of an RPG book for me. Um, and just it's just the difference between four people working on a project as writers and two people working on oh, scooted something. It's just the difference between four people working on a book together as collaborators and two people working on a book together as collaborators. Uh, I no longer had that sort of edit and be edited relationship with Matt that mm-hmm. I did on the first book. But uh, we very much kind of divided the book into the quadrants we wanted to work on. Um, but for a book of wild amount size, that's really the only way it was possible to be done. There, there's a lot of amazing stuff in wild mount, and uh, most of it is, uh, most of it is the work of other people. That's that's such a that's such a strange mindset to go into when you consider sure. yourself like uh, an author on a book is to look at the final product and say, by by pages, I most of the work in that book is not mine. <laughs> and so I still feel this sense of ownership and and like protectiveness over the book. But it, it's clear to me that it's not my book. And it, it's, you know, it was always Matt's book anyway. But in many ways, it's not his book either. He he was the germ that that it all started from. His mind is the only reason why it exists. But that book belongs not only to all of the authors. It belongs to the, the editor. Uh, my mm-hmm. partner, Hannah, did so much in-depth editing on that book that just transformed the manuscript in a way that it's it, it transformed it in, in a way that makes it what it is today and then the editors of wizards and then and then the people at home who get it like that's the, the collaboration comes back in in an entirely unpredictable way once the players actually get their hands on the thing 
Um, I want to take a brief moment and go back to Dragon Heist uh, yeah. and talk about something that I experienced when I first saw the uh, the text of the book. Um, I had turned in my manuscript at the end of summer, and then about a year later, I think no, a little less than a year later, I got to see the text, mm-hmm. and I was absolutely devastated when I saw the text because so much of what I had written had been changed. You know, I, I felt, I felt my ego shatter within me. Um, did they not like it? Was what I wrote, was what I wrote wrong? Had I, had I made a mistake? Would wizards ever work with me again? They changed so much of my writing. There was so much more work that they had to do on top of what they hired me to do. Surely they won't ever want to work with someone who they need to edit so much ever again. Those were all baseless fears. Or at least they were fears that turned out to not be true. Yeah. Um, I reached out to Wolfgang Bauer, who I uh, worked with a lot at Kobold Press. You know, he was a former writer at TSR and at Dragon Magazine and stuff like that. He's an industry veteran. Um, and he's someone who I consider a mentor and who I trust and I love deeply. Um, and I asked him, hey, my manuscript just got torn apart uh, without any feedback from me, right? But before that point, I'd worked on third-party publications where you write an article and the editor red pens it. They send it back to you and yeah. you change it. And then you send it back and maybe there are some other edits at the end. So turning in a manuscript, saying, here it is, and then receiving thanks not hearing from them for over six months and then seeing so much changed uh was kind of (laughs) kind of a world shattering event um and wolfgang said back to me essentially yeah that's what happens um and i was dismal for longer than i care to admit about that um and this was this was still before the book was announced this was coming up on the stream of many eyes event Okay. Um, and all of a sudden, all the wind had just been taken out of my sails. I was no longer excited for this huge, amazing, glitzy kickoff. I wasn't excited for the book. And sometime before the event, maybe a couple of days, maybe a week before, I looked at the manuscript again. And I looked at what had been changed. And I looked and I, I found what had stayed the same. And I found that the stuff that had stayed the same was the stuff that I cared about the most. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the more I looked at the book, all of the stuff that I had put my, like really all of my heart into, the stuff that was really most vital to me had, with, with a few minor exceptions, practically been left word for word unchanged. There was some stuff cut from Troll Skull Alley that I wish had been in there. Sort of personality details for the many NPCs that mm-hmm. I thought would have been very useful <laughs> for TMs. I'm a little salty about that being cut still, but uh, page count is what page count is. So I, I, I have come to terms with that. Um, but Troll Skull Alley in particular, that's the beating heart of Dragon Heist to me. Um, and with minor exceptions like that, Troll Skull Alley is word for word what I wrote. Uh, in my original manuscript. Um, and I think that's something that if you if you're looking to be an RPG writer 
or I don't know, a, a writer who works for Marvel or DC or, or Disney or, or whatever, you have to understand that you're you're the phrase cog in a machine sounds very minimizing and pejorative, but you are part of a larger whole and yeah. that larger whole it, it's, it's reliant upon the company that publishes your work because you're working for a hire, right? <laughs> they own your words. Um, the, the company that is publishing what you have written for them is going to do so in a way that suits their needs. And not only that, uh, for the most part, the people who are editing your work are smarter than you. Uh, and and people, people don't get that. People's egos are very fragile. My ego is very fragile, especially when I was just starting out. Um, and, and editors are your friend. Editors are your friend beyond almost any working relationship you can have in uh, in a writing based industry because their their goal is the editor doesn't care about your feelings. Maybe a really good editor cares about like being nice to you. Good editors care about being nice to you, not being a jerk. But editors don't care about your preciousness towards your text. They care about if they're a good editor, the quality of the final product. Right. Um, and if you were the right person for the job, then most of your writing is geared towards the final product. Anyway, the, the, the core of your writing suits the final product and all of that stuff that gets changed or trimmed or, or remolded or moved around. That is stuff that is either good, but not right, or it's right, but not presented correctly. And it's the editor's job to like make all of those puzzle pieces fit together because no matter how good you think the manuscript you turn in is it's probably not exactly what they wanted um and it would be it, it's it the earlier you learn that your manuscript will always be changed the the earlier you will be able to avoid having your heart broken by an editor mm, um yeah. and i i don't think there's a more important lesson to be learned there's no there was no more important lesson for me anyway um <laughs> for for who i am as a person that was foundational um i'm sure there are people who kind of have an idea of this already and so there's something else that will make the entire world fall into place for them but if you're anything like me uh knowing knowing that <laughs> you have to set your ego aside and just let the work be what it needs to be the world will open up. You will be so much happier. You'll be you will be freer. You will feel free to write what you want and know that, you know, if it doesn't happen the way I wrote it, so be it. So be it. Well, it's great that you've been able to get to that place because I because I think I mean, you're, you're right. That that would be a gut punch to not be in that place. And there like really said, was a dark there. night before the dawn right there. Oh, though. yeah, I believe it. <laughs> If if you don't mind my asking, and if your NDAs allow you, um, are you able to share some of the the NPC stuff that you wish had still stuck around Troll School? Um, if you can't, that's fine. I, I can tell you what it was. Wizards owns the text, which is why I've regrettably been unable to publish it on, say, D and D Beyond. I, sure. I wish I could publish it on D and D Beyond. That would be, or on the DM's Guild. That would be a wonderful little supplement, cutting room floor supplement. Yeah. Um regrettably my contract does prevent that um but in in short what was cut from troll skull alley was um just like a player character would have ideals bonds and flaws and personality traits i wrote out traits ideals bonds and flaws for all of the main npcs in troll skull alley just so that they would feel like 
a fully fleshed out character. And as it stands, I think in the final product, they're a little they're a little NPC ish, uh, which a DM can certainly breathe life into. There's there's not no information there, but they would feel like uh, real people if we had been able to give them that extra bit of detail. They still work fine. I'm still mm-hmm. happy with them. Their personalities shine through regardless. But I think, you know, one of the goals for Dragon Heist was to make it really, really accessible to new Dungeon Masters. That's a goal with every product, but it was stated yeah. to me very clearly that that was the goal uh, with Dragon Heist. And I think I think new DMs would have been able to grab onto those characters just a little bit more if those uh, if those motivations and personality traits have been presented there in that manner. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, you're always going to have regrets. <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm glad that my regrets have uh, have ultimately been as small as that one. Sure. Let's talk about Avernus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about Avernus at all. Go for it. You just uh, I'll sit back and you talk about Avernus. because I haven't played it. I've only looked at the cover. And gone. Sure. That looks sure. Cool. Um, my my talk about Avernus is going to be, uh, you know, fairly short and snappy because my involvement with Avernus was short and snappy. Um, I was brought in quite late in the game to write the ending um, and I, I was brought in to write the ending while a lot of material was, was still in flux, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I did my best to scrounge together uh that makes it sound much worse than it is. I, I did my best to sort of uh, gather all of the authors who were working on the book in one place so I could figure out what they were all doing and figure out what the big beats that needed to be resolved in order to end the adventure were. Um, uh, and that was a brand new challenge for me. I've never written an ending for something that doesn't have <laughs> everything that comes before it set in stone. It's bizarre, yeah. bizarre process. But game development is a bizarre process. It's never, it's never linear in the way you think it is. Um, and so uh, I, I knew that there were a number of things. There was city of El Terrell, and there was a companion and there was Tiamat and there was Zeriel. And those were kind of the four things that were most important to me. Uh, in making sure the the big, the major things uh, of Descent into Avernus were all tied up nicely. Um, and I honestly think that, uh, and, and, you know, maybe I'm being, maybe I'm bragging a little bit here, but I, I honestly think the end of Descent into Avernus is one of the best adventure endings in 5th mm, edition okay. right now. Um, because it is, it, it's a very open-ended ending it gives you the opportunity because descent into avernus um i I think people have criticized it for being uh a very linear adventure there are kind of two paths you can take through hell the path of devils or the path of demons and not everyone is is uh on that wavelength um but the ending of avernus it, it it blossoms outwards into uh, a ending that you can really make your own because you might talk to Archon the Cruel and get Tiamat to solve the problem for you. You might, pardon me, you might talk with Zeriel and submit to her and become her minions. You might want to depose Zeriel and uh, make her, you know, cast her down just like she cast down the pit fiend bell and become rulers of Avernus yourself. You might try and do the hardest path there is and redeem Zeriel, make her mm-hmm. the, the angel that she once was like make that happen. Um, or you could fail. You could be consumed by the seas of fiends that, uh, 
are waging war throughout Avernus. Um, and I, I love that it's that ending is able to provide all of these options for you. D and D campaigns are by necessity, uh, an open ended thing because you, yeah. you know, you, players can make any decision that they want to. Um, but I, I think the endings, many campaign endings do permit that, right? They, they don't, they try not to prescribe what you need to do at the very end of it all. You know, the, the, the climax happens, you know, dragon heist, you get the money, you beat the villain. And then what might happen afterwards? Well, maybe they'll give you a few suggestions of what might happen afterwards, but yeah. that's, that's your problem. Uh, yeah. By that point, the DM and the players really ought to know uh, what their players want to do. And they, they should know enough about their group and the story they've told to, to be able to wrap it up in a way that's satisfying to everyone. And I think that's a fine philosophy, but I, I think it's even better when it you know, doesn't prescribe an ending for you. But it it gives you choices. And as always, a DM is free to use or ignore or remix those choices however they want to. But giving, and especially for new DMs who haven't played a lot of D&D before, giving them uh, a peek at how it might end. Here's how here's how it could have happened, right? Have you ever seen the the film Clue with Tim Curry? Oh yeah, the yeah. The, the, the film ends three that movie. three times in a row. Here's how it could have happened. Having those here's how it could have happened moments is very useful for someone who doesn't know how a D and D campaign should end. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you've seen The Lord of the Rings, you've seen Return of the King, and you see how it has six endings. Maybe each one of your characters should have a personalized uh, wrap up, but that doesn't work for every campaign. It might work for yours. But it doesn't work for everyone. So it doesn't work for every story. So having having some information there, uh, I think, is what what sets that ending apart from other adventures. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too into my own writing <laughs> for this one. <laughs> but uh, uh, the the process that made that ending come about was was fast and furious and wild and woolly. So even if it's uh, not as useful to folks as I think it is, I'm still proud of it. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think that the the open ended nature of the end to campaign books is is kind of both a blessing and a curse, right? Because it can, mm. on one hand, you're like, oh, you make it open ended, but you still want there to be enough guiding or enough framework that people feel like they have just as much space to make their make their own ending as they did in the middle of the story, right? Because yeah. you're just like, and you get the money, and and that's it, you're done, that's and you it. haven't. You haven't done the build up to give the DM maybe an idea of like, okay, well, how would the, you know, how would Xanathar act once yeah. you got the money or something, right? Yeah. So it, it is a tightrope to walk, I would assume, for for you as a writer, giving people just enough, just enough road to kind of figure out where they're going, but not enough that they feel like they're on a train track. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Perkins recommends a book by Stephen King. Uh, not a not a fiction book, but it's uh it's called on writing, on writing an autobiography Fantastic of the craft. Book, yeah. um, I've just ordered it. I, ha- I haven't read it, but I've heard it recommended by Chris Perkins uh, and other RPG contemporaries uh, innumerable times. So I'm looking forward to reading it. But uh, I-, I bring that up to say that one of the most important skills you can have as a DM is a sense of story. And that's such a vague term. I think it warrants further elaboration. Um, a sense of story 
uh, involves an understanding of rising action, right? This is kind of like creative writing 101 stuff. Every DM should like audit a creative writing 101 class, because even though you aren't, you know, you're not writing the campaign. Ideally, your players should be writing the campaign, given uh, the boundaries you set for them, right? You don't want to be a dictator with your campaign world. Um, but you should be able to, the best DMs, Matt Mercer's, Chris Perkins's, the 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 masters of the DMing world, know how to subtly, subtly push their players into creating a, a satisfying rising and falling action. And one of the most important parts of a rising and falling action uh, is the denouement at the end of the story. There's a huge climax, and then it all the tension drains out of the piece, and you're left with this nice ending. Maybe there's a little sequel hook at the end, but you know there's there's a nice ending where the world is at peace again. And I think one of the ur texts for most D and D DMs is Star Wars. Um, it's it's the fantasy story that everyone knows, uh, even if it's sci science fantasy it's still the fantasy story everyone knows star wars the original doesn't have much of a denouement it it really it's really like one throne room scene that's two minutes long at most between the death star exploding and the credits rolling Um, so i think people can get a, a kind of warped sense of how resolution can really make your story good uh if if uh like like me for many years star wars is your template for good fantasy storytelling um so I don't really know what the piece of advice here is on a specific level. On a general level, it's try to be a good writer. Learn how stories work. Learn the anatomy of a story. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to force your campaign to fit the anatomy of a story. But if you know how stories work, then you can subtly guide your story, your your D&D campaign to have some of those elements. And that will make the entire experience feel a little bit more alive that's awesome i think that's great advice yeah real quick let's jump over here uh because if you are one of my patreon supporters at patreon.com slash roll for persuasion then you are able to submit questions for my guests and i have a couple of questions for james today so we will uh, jump into those here real quick my backer sarah says at patreon.com slash roll for persuasion she says as a writer you've helped create adventures and settings for the community if you had the opportunity to change or alter one thing in the original set for Dungeons and Dragons 5e, what would it be? Could it be class or race specifications or a rule in the DM guide or even what you hope might change or improve in future editions of D&D? Oh, man. But you're right on the spot. Yeah. Um, if I were revising 5th edition, I've, I've written about this on Twitter. I, I think people who follow me on Twitter might, might recognize this idea. It's I think race in D&D is a fraught concept. Um, I think it could be handled better, even like race from D&D is descended from Tolkien. Gary Gygax famously disliked Tolkien, but his game still Mm -hmm. had halflings in it and they were called hobbits in the original game. So descended from even if Gary Gygax protests Um, and uh, even though D and so there are two schools of thought when it comes to race in D&D, there is uh, race as alien species and there's race as race. Race is race analog. Um, right. And even though Tolkien famously did not believe in allegory, um, he nevertheless, his his 
story was a very racially minded one. It involved mm-hmm. bloodlines and it involved, you know, evil Haradrim and orcs that were corrupted from the, the fair and perfect elves. Um, and so. Uh, I, I feel like early D&D, Gygaxian D&D. Uh, actively avoided that concept. Race was very much a species-like thing in Gygaxian D&D, perhaps with the exceptions of things like half-elves and half-orcs, which were still kind of a, a, a later creation. It's kind of a, uh, a D&D creation. In original D&D, if you were an elf, your class was elf. If you were a dwarf, your class was dwarf. And so there were these very sort of alien species-like, highly archetypal um, delineations of... Uh, race in D&D. And uh, I actually think that's a very interesting way of doing it. I think that's mm-hmm. very, very cool. And it's very, very fairy tale. It's a fairy tale conception of of race where they're all magical beings who are distinct from humans. They're, they're, they may have a, a mildly humanoid appearance, but they're they're totally different in mind and body and all of the and magic and all the ways that that matter to fairy tales. However, somewhere along the line, this idea of race as species crept or uh, uh, sorry, this idea of of race as human races uh, kind of. Got its way into D&D, and I think it's other people who liked Tolkien more than Gary Gygax did, uh, started taking those Lord of the Rings inspired ideas of race and bring them into the biggest fantasy game in the world, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, that's how you get things like half elves and half works right in the real world uh, with, I think, some vanishingly rare exceptions. Uh, animals of different species cannot uh, cannot sire fertile offspring. Right. If, if a horse and a donkey have uh, have a child, it's a mule and that mule is sterile. Um, yeah. And so thus, uh, even though the mule is is related to both of them, uh, they do not breed true, so to speak. Um, and, but the thing is in D and D, uh, everyone can have kids with everyone else. Um, an orc and a human have a half orc child and a human and an elf have a, have a half elf child. And, and even though the books only talk about those two, you can imagine many different combinations of this, of this working out, which means that e- even for people who are physiologically very different from one another, you know, you're a halfling, you're three feet tall, uh, Nonetheless, these these feel very much like different races of humans, different ethnicities almost. And so that's that's really where this baggage of um, of unpleasant racial stereotyping uh, or, or even like model minority racial stereotyping starts to uh, become a burr in the side of many of many players. If, you know, in a Star Wars RPG, your your alien characters are even though they all have a vaguely humanoid form. They're they're really quite different. You know, Greedo has got a big old green bug head and and that clearly not a human, even though he still has a head, two arms and two legs. Um, and and, you know, Rodians will only have children with other Rodians. They're clearly different species. And so I would want to uh, I'd want to kind of tighten the bolts. Two metaphors got mixed in terms of race with D&D mm-hmm. and um and it, it it needs to be clearer or else these these concerns about race and D&D will just continue. And there are 
There are ways to do that both from a mechanical perspective and a story perspective. Um, personally, I think D&D is in a position right now where race as race is the way it should be going for the most part. Uh, unless you've got a wildly different species like a Thrycreen or something like that, who's clearly a bug person with forearms, then uh, race should stay as race and you should treat them as like as you would different human ethnicities like one ought not to say that hobgoblins are naturally inclined towards militaristic warlike behavior because no no creature no human being is like no race of human beings is naturally inclined towards warlike militaristic right. behavior that's just not it's not feasible um so D&D straddles the line right now in a way that makes people, including myself, uncomfortable. I want them to pick a side of the line. Uh, and I have the side I would pick. And it's the side that I think most people would feel uh, less jarred by picking and right. really commit to it. Uh, and so if you commit to it, go all the way. That's that's, that's, what, I would, that's what I would change in the fifth edition player's handbook. And, and I think uh, you mentioned this, but I think you actually had a very good thread on this on Twitter recently. Yes. Um, kind of addressing those concepts. The orc which, discourse comes out, happened on yeah, Twitter. The orc discourse, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we're worth going. If this intrigues you, worth going and going through James' uh, Twitter history to find that. Because I thought, I thought it was very well, just like you did just now, it was very well thought out, enunciated, um, and thoughtful. So great answer. Thank you. Thanks. We'll go with our second question here on patreon.com slash role for persuasion from Patreon backer Brady. She says, having been part of several module based adventures, as well as an entirely new campaign setting, you obviously have sunk your teeth into a lot of D and D stories. If you had been a part of the writing team for one of the other published adventures, like curse of straw, tomb of annihilation, Horde of the dragon queen, etc., What is one thing that you would have liked to have seen added to the module or adventure? Whoa. Now that's, that's thanks, Brady. We just added an extra hour to the uh, to the episode. <laughs> Man, Grady, you're you're really throwing me the tough ones. Um, he, he, here's the deal: I D and D stories are meant to be malleable. D and D adventures are supposed to be changed up and remixed by every single person who plays them. Um, and one of the ways that I remixed a published adventure, it's the it's the only published adventure I've ever run other than Dragon Heist in its entirety. I'm looking at my shelf across the way. Yes. Princes of the Apocalypse, the second uh, storyline for D&D 5th edition is the only other D&D hardcover that I've run in its entirety. Um, and I love that adventure. And uh, it is also completely unsuited to my play style <laughs> it, it is an adventure that is focused around uh like five consecutive dungeon crawls with nothing in between with uh villains that have uh we'll call them threadbare motivations um and uh nonetheless i was i was magnetically drawn to it for reasons i can't fully explain i, I think the elemental theming caught me at the time mm -hmm. back in 2015 um and one of the things i did is right around you know if i were to call it a story right around 10th level right around the the end of act two i uh kicked the party into the elemental plane of water and they adventured in the elemental plane of water and had a very character-driven uh, exploratory time there. Excuse me. So, 
I thought that was a vital change of scenery for the adventure. Um, I thought it gave the opportunity for more character based role play and uh, allow them to get out of dungeons, which at that point was sorely needed in the adventure. So uh, I think the the folks at Sasquatch Games and Wizards of the Coast did a great job at Prince of the Apocalypse. I, I think it's very suited towards people who love dungeons. I love dungeons, but I don't love uh, that many dungeons all in a row. Um, so in 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 the the James Hake version of Princes of the Apocalypse, uh, the final act of the adventure would leave the material plane entirely and have characters grappling with the untamed power of the elemental chaos. Future D and D Beyond article, <laughs> perhaps so, perhaps so. Uh, Prince of the Apocalypse is not really in the public consciousness right now. I, I'd really have to make a good pitch to get that article out the door. <laughs> and, and it kind of like it seems for the same reasons that you mentioned, I'm kind of drawn to it because I love the idea of the elemental planes mm-hmm. and kind of the elemental aspects of it. So I, I would love to see either you know a resurgence of that or or a new you know down the road really well done campaign setting. They kind of explores those ideas again because I would like to play that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Planescape confirmed. <laughs> you were here exclusive. Spelljammer coming. Uh, when, so, final question: When are we going to get Dragonlance? Yeah, uh, JK. Oh man. Um, yeah, it's a whole other thing. Um, well, hey man, thanks so much for joining me. It's been really fun. I've, I've loved getting to kind of hear, uh, you know, the flow of, of how these things have developed and, and your mindset on approaching all of these projects. It's been really eye-opening for me and hopefully for my listeners as well. So thank you so much for uh, hopping on with me. Yeah, it's been a delightful chat. The time has really whizzed by. Uh, I've, I've loved having to having the time to hang out with you. Yeah, it's been it's been lots of fun. And don't forget, again, for Patreon backers, uh, hang around after the theme music. Because we're going to do it for a little bit longer. I think we're probably going to chat about what we've been doing in quarantine, video games, baking projects. Um, So if you are a Patreon supporter, you can stick around for the Zone of Truth segment, which will be coming up here at the very end. Um, And that will be a lot of fun. But uh, James, where can people check you out online? Where can they see your work, you know, interact with you? Where can they develop parasocial relationships with you? (laughs) Um, you can find me most often on Twitter at James J Hake. Uh, I'll bet the, I'll bet the link will be in the we'll episode in the description. Notes, yeah. Yep. Um, and you can find me, I mean, I, I spend almost, uh, every waking hour writing for D and D beyond, uh, these days. So, uh, you can check out all the things I write on www.dndbeyond.com. Very awesome. And as I said, thank you again so much for, um, joining us. And special shout out because uh, I want to mention our final sponsor. We were talking about, you know, people that we've met in the community that have become friends. Uh, Smuggler's Coffee is the sponsor for the Zone of Truth segments. We want to thank them very much for supporting the show. I want to thank their coffee specifically for supporting me and getting stuff done with the caffeine boost I need. I just, uh, I I really do love their stuff. Store.smugglerscoffee.com. They just had some new uh, new lines that they just announced. So if you want some badass coffee, go check them out. Super nerdy artwork all over the bags, uh, fun thematic things like Tomb of Caffeination, Brew Hope, things such as that. I really enjoy them. And like I've always told you guys, they brew some of these beans, uh, they age some of these beans in old bourbon and whiskey barrels. So they get all these sorts of cool, nifty flavors that you might not get from your normal uh, Maxwell House brew. So definitely go check them out. Store.smugglerscoffee.com. We appreciate them supporting the show and the Zone of Truth segment. And supporting the D&D community because Dave and everyone at Smugglers are great people. So thanks again to my guest, James. Really appreciate him being on. And if you are a supporter, hang around because we're going to keep talking with him. 
If you want to support the show, you can check us out on social media at Rolled Persuasion on Twitter and on Instagram. You can email me, Andrew, at RollForPersuasion.com. Patreon.com slash RollForPersuasion is another great way to support the show. We appreciate your reviews and feedback on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser.com. And I always appreciate it directly. Reach out to me on Twitter. I love chatting with people on there. And so tune in next time because we're going to have more and more of these awesome guests that we are bringing you here in the midst of the uh, the quarantine that we are in. And we want to make sure you guys are well entertained. So until next time, guys, make sure that you enjoy your games. 